Hey everyone, I'm Patrick Jones and welcome to episode 47 of That Gives Me Anxiety. Man, close to 50. Anyway, here in Charleston, certainly got lucky. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some people who dealt with a, a bit of flooding, but generally the hurricane wasn't too bad, especially when you compare it against Florida. I mean, I was still, we were definitely stressed the whole day. Just, just watching the trees rattle around <laughs> and things blow around. Definitely water came up higher in other people's, in our neighborhood's house, which are houses, which is kind of interesting or nerve wracking because then people were posting pictures of like 10 foot alligators <laughs> coming up into their backyard, right? Like they got a little bit more space. Alligators are, you know, you just gotta, you, you want, you want space between you and the alligators. So when they get a little bit more room and start taking it. That causes anxiety. But yeah, just a, a bit of a relaxing weekend after the kind of craziness of, of the hurricane, you know, putting everything back outside and cleaning up the yard. I also started water sealing my fence because it's made of wood. <sighs> Tedious. It's gonna take me a while to actually finish that. And that's why we have podcasts. Well, I've got a great episode lined up for you today. It's the full interview with Dr. Charles Smith, who's a doctor that helps people detox uh, on the road to getting sober. And not only does he have the information that he has being a doctor, but he's also been on the other side of that, uh, getting sober himself. And so he's able to talk to his patients from, uh, from personal experience. And it's great. I think he's Got a lot of really good insight uh, that can be helpful whether you're a person seeking sobriety or you're supporting someone who is seeking sobriety or trying to stay sober. Because let's be honest, we all know somebody. Addiction is very real and it's very difficult to kick. Whatever it is, gambling, drugs, alcohol, it takes a, a good support system. But before we talk to the doctor, I just want to remind you, if you're liking the show, to please remember to rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening it to, listening it to it on there, go. <laughs> you can check the show out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and or YouTube. If you only want to choose one, you know, it could be YouTube where you can watch the video. And if you're liking the show and you want to support it and support me, you can make a donation through the link in the description through the buy me a coffee link just a platform that allows you to make donations to uh, creators like me so yeah as always thank you so much for listening and enjoy joining me on the podcast is dr chuck smith who specializes in addiction chuck can i call you chuck yeah, sir. yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I'm 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 thrilled to be able to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, why don't we start? I mean, this is such a almost at times taboo subject in in, in culture to in our culture to discuss getting healthy with addiction, and and there seems to be such a debate on how we view addiction. Some people view it as an, a disease. Some people unfortunately still have more older vantage points but why don't we start by you introducing yourself and, and talking a little bit about what you do 
Well, as you said, I'm Dr. Chuck Smith, and I'm an addiction medicine specialist in Hollywood, Florida. I work for Recovery First Treatment Center, which is parent company, American Addiction Centers. I've been with them about four years now. I completed my addiction medicine fellowship at the University of Florida 2016 to 2018. The other thing that might make my uh, introduction needs to be stated was that I played on both sides of the table. I was a family practitioner in West Virginia and Kentucky for 26 years until I went to treatment myself for addiction to alcohol and opiates in 2009. And that's what spurred my interest in addiction medicine and then subsequent retraining and uh, my work I do now. Oh, wow. And, and, and so how many years have, have you been sober? 12. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that you certainly bring a, a unique per perspective to this discussion. If you feel comfortable, I, I'd oh, love perfect. to. I, I'd love to find out a little bit more about your story and and how did you know when it was time for you to seek help? Well, that is interesting. I, you know, I had strong family history of problems with alcohol. My father, grandfather, uncles permeated both sides of my family. I was a binge drinker in college, medical school. I didn't drink so much because I probably wasn't going to graduate if I did. So I was able to curtail it. But looking back on it, it made me sad. I was not happy that I couldn't drink like I wanted to. So as I started to practice in my early 30s, my alcohol use escalated. And as marriage, work, dealing with insurance companies, trying to run a private practice, it was very stressful. Now I know why that increased my drinking even more. So in my 30s, I started coming to work basically with alcohol poisoning because very sick, very sick. Mm -hmm. And that was about the time in the late 80s they started sampling Vicodin and Lortab or hydrocodone. Mm -hmm. So I certainly knew better. I was a trained physician, but I was sick. So I, I got into some of those and certainly they relieved my symptoms. And they turned out they relieved my symptoms a lot. So honestly, from the mid-30s for the next 20 years, my life was a blur. I never got off those. I obtained them many different ways. I ordered them wholesale. I got friends to write them for me. And near the end, I was practicing at a uh, clinic in West Virginia, a state-ran clinic. And me and the ex-girlfriend had been collaborating to get fraudulent prescription pills. We were getting about 3,000 pills a month. Oh, my gosh. Um, then one day at the clinic, the nurses came back and said, Dr. Smith, there's two DEA agents here to see you. And that was November 22nd of 2009. I'll never forget that day. So the two DEA agents came in and said, we would just like to know one thing. What is wrong with you? So I said, well, I guess I'm sick. And the one said, if you've been selling those, you're going to prison. I said, I don't sell them. He said, one person can't take that many. And I told him I run out sometimes. So I subsequently went on to treatment. I was out of medicine for seven years. I got trained in both inter addiction interventions and addiction counseling. And then I was fortunate enough to be accepted by the University of Florida in 2016 to do an addiction medicine fellowship. And that was my pathway back into medicine. 
So what brought the answer to your original question, what brought it to my attention was the federal government. Yeah. That was my, <laughs> that was my intervention. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to laugh. It's just, it's just very plainly stated. Yeah, I can smile about it today. I promise you I wasn't then. Right. Of course. I'm sure it was a daunting experience. Yeah. When DEA agents get involved. Can we talk? I know you've got a lot on your plate. You've got work. You've got friends. You've got family. Pets. You've got the people that you make small talk with at the coffee shop or gym. You've got that bird that you see when you wake up every morning outside your window that you've projected things onto. Look at that bird. Doesn't even love its family. It's always by itself. You do that. Everyone does that. Point is, you've got a lot on your plate. Well, that's why there's Instacart, to take a little bit off your plate. Using Instacart, you search for all your favorite foods and things that you need from the grocery store, all online, all while you're looking at that bird, wondering why it hasn't called its mom. And they deliver it to you. They go to the store and do the shopping for you. And they can deliver it in as fast as an hour. And you can sign up by clicking the link in the description, wherever you're listening or watching. And that's a great way of supporting the show. So it's a great way of supporting this show. It's a great way to make your life a little bit easier because we all know that you have so much going on, like wondering whether that bird judges you back. So let's talk about someone who is addicted. I mean, do you approach different substances differently? Do you approach, let's say, someone who's addicted to opioids uh, differently than someone who is a, a heavy drinker? Actually, I don't, even in my work. I mean, our, our detox is certainly different for different substances, but the treatment is not. As, it, as they go through detox, residential, a partial hospitalization, or outpatient, our treatment doesn't focus on the substance, but the detox it certainly does, so we treat them medically differently. As far as the intervention prior to coming to treatment, no, I treat all the substances the same. And when I did interventions prior to getting back into medicine, what I always even then tried to stress to family, treat this as any other sort of medical emergency. As you mentioned earlier, it certainly is awkward. There's social stigma attached to addiction and, and use of drugs or use of alcohol. So Many people are certainly shy or backward about approaching a loved one over this, but I think about this all the time. If you had a loved one who was experiencing chest pain, you wouldn't sit still and not get them to a cardiologist. Right. You had a, someone who had a bleeding disorder, easy bruising, any sort of physical ailment that you noticed, depending on just how close you were to that family member, you, you would not give up until they sought professional medical care. Mm-hmm. And quite often with this one, it simply doesn't happen because the patient who's using will make all sorts of promises. Well, I'll cut back on my own. You know, I'll do this or I'll do that. But very, very seldom does that happen if they truly have the disease. What I always strive for doing interventions and still now is ask them to at least agree to a professional examination by a behavioral health, a mm-hmm. medical person. So that we, we find out just what is your use? Is it problematic or are you just a social drink? Right, right. That is it. So that I, is a good foot in the door to, to at least get yeah, something. I, yeah. 
I just tell families, and certainly I did this when I did when I did interventions too. Then expect the patient to be resistant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's the sort of, of disease that damages your decision making process and your perception. So you do have to be firm, persistent, and I think at least when I use tough love, that's where it comes in at this point. Is I'm not going to settle for you not getting an evaluation. Mm. You know, it's not my job as family members to tell you you have the disease or you don't have the disease. I'm just asking you to get professional help, as I would with any other medical problem. Yeah. Well, I think I think a lot of people may struggle with when does an intervention need to happen, right? There, I, I feel like there's this, especially with alcohol, people being like, well, if they're not hiding vodka bottles in, in behind the toilet, you know, they don't have a problem. When, when do you think an intervention is, is helpful or, or necessary? Well, certainly if they started to have, if the substance has started to cause relationship problems, mm-hmm. if it started to cause work problems, or if you know that it's caused them health problems. We actually have a, a screening tool that has the mnemonic C-A-G-E, CAGE. And family members can easily do this, and we're just asking that the patient be honest with them in their answers and that the family member recognizes it too. But on C-A-G-E, the first one is, have you tried to cut back and couldn't or curtail your use and, and, and you were unsuccessful? The second one is, are you annoyed or angry when someone calls you out on your drinking? Or, you know, if you say, hey there, you, you, you drank 14 beers last night. What, what were you trying to do? Or did you really drive intoxicated? Mm-hmm. You're, you're slipping here at work. Your work's getting backed up. And if that annoys you or you get angry over it, that's a positive answer. Third one would be guilty. Does the patient feel guilty over the use? Did it cause them to miss, you know, an event, a birthday, a party? Did they wreck a car? Something they felt guilty about in their use. And the fourth one is eye opener. Do they use first thing in the get up in the morning? Or, for example, they're going to a Christmas party and they're slamming shots at home before they go. They, they mm-hmm. needed a confidence builder or a head start on the other people. And answering an affirmative to any of those four questions should prompt a professional evaluation where we're going to get more in depth, find out just how much they drink and use, what effect it's had on their personal life, their work life, their physical health. But Mm. just answering one of those should prompt an evaluation. Just one. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess. when When you think about them, see, each one is problematic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Why not get uh, a behavioral specialist involved? It's, it is not the end of the world to, to just exactly. know what you're, what you're up against, as opposed to just continuing to, to sweep it under the rug. Yeah, we certainly go for medical evaluations and screenings for much less. Mm-hmm. That's very true. You know, Diabetes testing, cholesterol testing, cardiac stress testing. Uh, we even see ads periodically for whole body CT scanning, maybe even on a patient who's asymptomatic just to try to find some early disease. And by the time you answer yes to one of those questions, you probably are past early disease. 
too popular it's getting pretty advanced right yeah today's episode is sponsored by my software tutor can excel be my friend do you want a new friend thinking about making new friends both makes me excited and sad so it, it can be hard to make friends as you get older and so I feel like sometimes you get surrounded by people. It's like, yeah, I guess we're friends. But also, if you truly connect with someone, you can make new friends as, as, a, as an adult. On both sides of the fence here. <laughs> so Excel can be your friend, or it could be surrounding you. That's just probably because you don't know it that well. Many people have deviated so far from the copy. Let me get back to it. Can Excel be my friend? Many people have wondered this for years. The answer is... Yes, it can. That was so much shorter than where I was going with it. All right, let's talk about my software tutor. They offer three levels of real-time Zoom-based courses with a live instructor. They all deliver practical, functional business skills in a friendly, supportive environment. That sounds nice. I mean, it could be so daunting to learn Excel or make friends. These courses will increase your marketability, whether you're an employee, job seeker, consultant, or contractor. That sounds pretty good. Register at mysoftwaretutor.com and use the promo code POD20 to save and use the promo code POD20 to save 20% off all re- 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 registrations. <laughs> what is what does treatment look like? I feel like if you're sick and 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 struggling with whatever substance there's a I mean there's a lot to unpack, right? You you've got guilt and shame and 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 fear, but just so someone understands a little bit about what treatment looks like so that they have some understanding going into it. Yeah. What's day one of trying to help somebody? Well, that's what, that's what I do is, is I'm an addiction medicine physician that takes care of the detox patients. So I see them day one and I ensure every one of them that my main purpose is to give them the safest and most comfortable medical detox possible. So I, number one, want to keep them safe, certainly. Alcohol benzodiazepines are very dangerous chemicals to stop suddenly due to seizures, convulsions, even delirium tremens where they can have psychosis. I want to tell them I'm going to keep them as comfortable as possible with our medications. Certainly uh, opiates. We have buprenorphine or, or Subutex is the trade name for it that we use to get comfortable detoxes from uh, opiates. It turns out amphetamines and cocaine, we can just give them support with comfort medications, for example, muscle relaxers, ibuprofen, Tylenol, something safe to help them sleep. We have several non-narcotic sleep medications that we do. So no matter what the substance was, they could count on somewhere between four and seven days in detox. During that time, we're going to assess them medically for any coexisting medical problems, and we're going to assess them psychiatrically for generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, do they have bipolar or bipolar tendencies or mood disorder or any psychosis or or schizoaffective type disorder. They get that screening while they're in detox. And then that's paramount in treating them in the future is that we're able to manage them both medically as they would need to be and psychiatrically appropriately. Mm -hmm. that That dictates the rest of the care is would they need actual residential treatment 
or would they be able to go home and commute back and forth or telemedicine with the, the remainder of their treatment? And what I stress to patients, even from the time they get to detox, is this isn't a seven-day or a 30-day or a 90-day program. This is the rest of your life. This is no different than I diagnosed you with high blood pressure and I gave you a pill. I don't tell you to take it for six weeks. And then stop. Okay, you take it the rest of your life, and we're going to continue to monitor you. So I want patients being seen by a behavioral health professional and a physician at least annually, at the minimum, to assess their maintenance of keeping addiction free or long-term recovery would be the way we use it right here. Yeah. Well, there's got to be. I mean, what a shift especially for, for people who are using whatever substance as like a crutch or whatever in their daily lives, shifting from that person to a person who doesn't have that crutch has got to be a heavy, heavy transition. As someone who... It certainly is. Yeah. For, for one, most have, most have used those substances to avoid any emotional pain or any physical pain. Mm-hmm. Most people who use are using to change the way they feel. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, out of their comfort zone at that point. So, restless, irritable, discontent, depressed, bored, just not happy people. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in this phase. And, you know, we certainly encourage them along the way and any way medically and psychiatrically we can to ease that. We do. But there is some component that's uncomfortable to it. And I, I think. I tell them it's just to be expected. You know, this is detox. Mm-hmm. I can make it safest and comfortable as possible, but still, you're finally going to have to deal with these emotional pains that you've been putting on the back burner with drugs and alcohol. Right. Yeah. And that can be a scary, scary moment, I'm sure. I, I feel like a big aspect of, of getting sober or clean, or however uh, you want to phrase it, is slipping up and falling do you what do you say to people who are trying to get clean and 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 fall is it off the wagon or are you on the wagon when you're when you're clean i i get it's confused off, with yeah, that. it's all you fall off the wagon so you would say fall off the sober wagon okay you that's know, what, one of the things and, and i do get many patients who have relapsed and come back in and usually i ask them i said well look, let's go through an autopsy of what happened. Why why did this happen to you? So I go right back to the treatment plan. I said, let me see, were were you attending and participating in peer support mutual aid, such as AA, NA, or one of the 12-step groups? Did you get a sponsor? Were you working instead? Did you continue to work with your master's level social workers to do cognitive behavioral therapy? Did you see your primary care physician? Have you been taking the medications he prescribed? Did you see your psychiatrist or your psychological professional? Are you following their recommendations? Did you take all the medications that we prescribed for you at time of discharge? And honestly, no one answers, yeah, I've been doing all that and I came back. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always, they drop the ball somewhere. And you know, with diabetes, we ask for diet, exercise, and prescribed medication. Well, if I get a diabetic who comes back in and says, you know, I took the medicine, but no, nah, I don't. I'm, the diet and exercise, that's all that's off the table. I can't do that. We don't expect their diabetes to be controlled. So with addiction, it's no different. 
you have to dysregulation of the dopamine reward system. And if you don't do the proper behavioral and pharmaceutical pathway, it doesn't heal. So relapse is more than likely to happen. Yeah. What do you want someone who is just starting on this journey of getting sober to know uh, as someone who's gone through this and, and someone who presently helps people uh, go through this process? Well, you know, er- early on, I want to try to dispel some of the shame and guilt that they have, mm-hmm. uh, that they basically understand it's not 100% fault, their fault that this happened to them. They more than likely had a genetic predisposition. They probably had adverse childhood experiences. They may or may not have dual diagnosis of anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, or PTSD. They probably started at an early age. I agree. Some blame could be laid on them for starting at an early age. But just think in our society, wouldn't it be kind of weird if you went to college and didn't drink? Mm-hmm. That's the way I would have looked at it. Yeah. And they probably have high tolerance for the substance that they're using. That's how they got exposed to so many milligrams. So I tell them, just take that baseball bat that you're beating yourself up with and put it down because that's not going to get you anywhere. You do have this disease, and here's your pathway out. Then, after they will let up on themselves a little bit, I tell them about the prognosis for patients who are compliant with treatment. The recovery rates are near 100%. Are they? Do what we, yeah, if you if you do what we ask, and we don't yeah. ask anything astronomical, mm-hmm. but we do ask them things that need to be done to achieve or one hundred percent. But still, that's often, good. That's positive. That there, if this, then that, right? Like there, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and and I think that great prognosis that they can have it is enlightening. Really, it's good news. Many times. Patients don't want to give up another substance, and they say, you know, I only have problems with heroin, Doc. Come on. I, surely I should be able to drink some beer. And I said, maybe you could and get away with it. It's not our treatment plan because it puts you at high risk. Many times they don't want to give up cannabis. Many times they don't want to give up the sleeping pill. But any of the substances that we lump into mind-altering substances that dysregulate the dopamine reward system puts you at risk. Mm-hmm. So you have a vulnerable dopamine reward system, as we said, for all those other risk factors. If you're a compliant patient, near 100% rec- lifetime recovery and continue to, and continue to do the treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure, like you're saying, a lot of people who, let's say, even do dry January will then increase the amount of dessert that they have or they'll turn to like weed gummies or, or something the the dopamine reward system feels like it has to get something right like it has to alter its state there has to be a reward in some way how do you yeah well, okay. once the substance is gone there's definitely a void and i actually did, I did a group of patients this morning where i discussed that with them and the key here is replace that void with healthy behavior Mm-hmm. And it's very easy pitfall to fall into any of the things you said internet, gambling, food, sugar, things that you would readily agree maybe at small doses aren't necessarily dangerous. But for someone who has that vulnerable dopamine system, it needs to be replaced with healthy behavior. 
Mm -hmm. Quite often I use that old army phrase with patients. I say uh, the old army commercial, if you want to be all you can be, meaning the happiest, the healthiest, and the most productive person you can be, most people are going to say, of course I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, then this is what you need to do. And it's really not overwhelming. Now, some people are just appalled when I ask them to be abstinent from alcohol. The alcohol wasn't what brought me here, Doc. It was cocaine. I say, yes, but alcohol puts you at risk. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you have two beers and then all of a sudden you think you can take a bump or, or find a new problematic uh, drug to, to fall into. Yeah. yeah. And in our society... It's not just socially acceptable to drink alcohol. It's socially expected. Well, it is, yeah. Holidays, birthday parties, office parties, and it's so socially expected when you decline drinking. Many people will say, oh, you don't drink? Why? That's awkward if you're a person that has our disease. So many of us, that is a coping skill. What do you say? Well, and I've been asked that many times. Oh. You don't drink? And when they say that, I say, you know what? It's not good for you. Did you ever go to the doctor? And he said, I think you should pick up drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And while you're at it, here's a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the card I play now is, you know, my goal is to be as healthy and as happy as I can be. And alcohol is not on the menu. Good for you. Yeah, it is. It's so bizarre collectively it's like almost people who when we're drinking we know we're doing something at least somewhat harmful to our bodies and if someone's not in our circle it like creates this cognitive dissonance that we can't handle uh, but we got to get society to a place where we can tolerate people not even tolerate just accept the fact that people don't always have to be drinking and, and exactly and i also see this if i have a patient who maybe their spouse or a loved one does drink and i say you know i'm actually going to ask things like that you have alcohol free christmas parties that you don't keep alcohol in the house i'm not going to tell you you can't have champagne at the wedding you go to and your spouse does that's your personal decision but if the spouse says you know, they're the ones the problem, not me. I'm not changing my pattern. Then I start wondering, maybe you have the problem. Let's take you through these screening tools. So it sounds like you just got annoyed when I even mentioned leaving the substance alone. And that's one of your four steps to to uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you've just you've just tripped it. So uh, let's let's exactly. get started. And quite often, quite often we see that the. the the one that didn't come to treatment will balk when we ask them for a safe, sober home environment. Mm. That actually happens more than you can imagine. I'd imagine, especially with the codependency nature of some relationships where you're doing everything together, that, that drinking could, you look at one partner and say like they have the problem, but you both have a little bit of a problem if you're both doing it and reacting. And you know, even this one I see a lot too. Say I've had a teen or early 20s with fentanyl and with the opioid crisis, what it is today, most parents get extremely fear and anxious and bring them into treatment. So we look at their home environment and find out that knocks down 20 beers during an average barbecue. Mm. Well, we don't want to send them home to that environment. 
And quite often they say, no, wait a minute, I'm almost like I'm not on trial here. And I said, yeah, but the environment is on trial here. We're yeah. Asking you, we're asking your son or daughter to come back to a safe environment, and there isn't one. Mm. Well, and it's also... That we get mocked on that a lot of times. Yeah. And well, just the idea of being like, I'm being put on trial, the defensive reaction. It's like, well, this is not a trial. We're just trying to help whomever get healthy here. Mm -hmm. So just changing, hopefully beginning to change just how we view that as, as it's not attacking this person's character. You were just describing what would lead to success. Yeah, and the same way as I would ask for that, that a diabetic, they don't adorn their house with cakes and cookies and ice cream and they have an ice cream dispenser and all these things. I, I would think that they would want an environment conducive that's going to make them easier to be compliant. Yeah. Easier to be diet compliant, easier to be exercise compliant. So I, I always relate addiction back to many of the other chronic diseases, I find patients can accept it better that way. And then once they have been given some education on the dopamine reward system and what gets, gets regulated, I find they do. They, they kind of, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Man, I'm, I'm so surprised in a positive way that how successful you expect people to be if they follow your guidelines. I, I, I guess I really yeah. had no idea. I mean, it can't be easy. Well, we actually have evidence-based medicine to back that up. That's not just my opinion. Mm -hmm. With doctors, airline pilots, and nurses that enter five-year monitoring programs that ensures they stay abstinent with random testing, ensures they get cognitive behavioral therapy, ensures they get appropriate psychiatric care, ensures they participate in some sort of peer support, we get over 90% success. Now, many people say, well, it's just because they wanted to be a doctor again, just because they wanted to fly jets again. You could say that, but we got five years. They were using, they got them involved in the program in the first place, so they obviously have the disease. But my own personal belief is that they're better and didn't relapse because they got good treatment and they were compliant with treatment. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, that, that certainly makes sense to me. Do you wish you were one of those thoughtful card people, but don't have the time or energy? I don't know why I did bunny ears on that. Or maybe you had a personal assistant. I like to pretend sometimes when I'm running errands that I am my own person. I make up games in my head. I might be revealing too much about myself. But you don't need to pretend to be your own personal assistant, at least when it comes to cards. Because the Cardist Studio is your personal assistant. Let's set up a situation. You think, oh, I should send them a card. But things get in the way. You're busy. All you'd have to do is jump onto thecardiststudio.com and tell them exactly what just popped in your head and, and why. And you'll get credit for your thoughtfulness. Here's what they'll do with that information. They'll get your personalized message handwritten into the card and into the mail for you. And you don't have to save space in your brain for this character that you've created as a made-up personal assistant. This bit is really getting off the rails. <laughs> It's fast, it's custom, and it's a total life changer. Hey, you are a thoughtful card person now. Thecardiststudio.com. Thoughtful. Just got easy. And you can use the promo code ANXIETYPOD for 10% off your orders. 
Is there anything you think I'm missing or anything you think that's important for, well, I guess, I guess we haven't talked about uh, the support system too much. Uh, on top of creating a, a positive environment for a person in treatment to, to live in, how else can someone who's around a person in treatment best support them? As I said, they, they, they actually start promoting alcohol-free events or alcohol-free parties, uh, uh, parties that they actually participate in some sort of 12-step mutual aid itself so they get a better understanding. Al-Anon mm. has been the one famous over the years that families participate in. And that gives them a, a layperson version of cognitive behavioral therapy. So they start seeing, okay, Nagging doesn't work. What actually works is holding accountable and being supportive. Mm. You wouldn't nag at someone because their blood sugar was 400. You would get them help. Right. So, you know, someone, someone leaving treatment, uh, I even use that old, I think it was Ronald Reagan that said, trust but verify. Yes. You know, so someone comes out of treatment, it's not inappropriate to have a breathalyzer at home. It's not inappropriate to ask for your drug screen. Whenever I have a patient who leaves treatment and they're not going to be monitored, I look at that famous in the diabetic home without a glucometer. I'm mm-hmm. saying, well, I think your blood sugar will be okay. We'll just guess at it for a while. Of course not. We get an objective test. So monitoring for alcohol and drugs are objective tests. And with our outpatient programs, we do that. When patients come back in, periodically, we do test it. Yeah. And the quicker we spot a relapse, the less intense treatment we have to do. Now, if we catch them after one drink, obviously they don't have to go through detox again. Mm-hmm. They won't be withdrawal. We just increase the level of care. Yeah. So that, that is what I stress to families is be, be supportive and learn from us how to be supportive. And that is accountability. Learn about the disease yourself. Mm-hmm. Remove casual use of substances. Yeah. That those are all that that's great advice. I'm curious about your own recovery. How hard was it, or or, or what what was it like going through that? Well, I, I went through a pretty typical sequela that that most people do who have a 20 year history of use. I, I was depressed for for quite a while. There's actually for many of us a period of grieving the loss of your, your alcohol or your drugs. Because as you said earlier, you used it to inflate yourself from emotional and physical pain. The process of the brain healing takes about two years. Now, that doesn't mean it's dark for the whole two years. I I use the analogy sometimes like watching the sunrise, 6 a.m., just dusk, then, or dawn, I mean, then 9 a.m. is a little sun up, and then by noon it's bright. Well, that's what your path through the first two years is like. Mm You, know, you turn your head, you notice that that sun's moved when you look back. But if you just stare at it, you can't tell. Yeah. How you feel in recovery is the same way. It, the days, the weeks, the months, as long as you're being com- a compliant patient, doing what we ask, things do get better. It's well, just that's first start though. I would imagine. Yeah, but that's great. I mean, that's a great metaphor because anyone that's thinking about entering treatment or just entering treatment and they're at complete dark skies that they're going to start to see a little sliver of sun. And then eventually the the sun will rise and it will get better. 
And that's actually the reason I self-disclose my own disease and recovery for most patients. I mean, I don't make their treatment about me, but I do think it gives them some hope And I, when they say, well, you just have no idea what I'm going through. I go, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. And if they want to know more, I tell them more, or I actually give them a copy of my book I wrote, which details all these events, as well as description of the dopamine reward system and long-term recovery treatment for patients and families. That's great. Yeah. I mean, just having someone to ask questions to right there got to be incredibly helpful. Yeah, I get good. I get good response back from most patients, you know, especially the ones that you have no idea what I'm going through. And then when I give them my book and I tell them, they go, I guess you do know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I was quicker than many of them are. Yeah. Well, t- tell me a little bit about your book. What What's it called? And, and, Actually, I have it. I can show up the camera here. It's uh, nice. Understanding addiction, no science, no stigma, and uh, it was written by both myself and Dr. Jason Hunt, who's an addiction medicine physician at the University of Florida, who I met in treatment in 2009. Mm-hmm. And we worked on this book for several years, and it came out on Amazon last June. And it's actually doing well. It's been in the in the top 30 of Amazon addiction books. For both of us, we've never written a book before and had no experience in publishing or anything like that. So uh, I've been pleased with it. I really wrote it so I could give it to patients and families that I was taking care of. But we did give some good reviews on Amazon. And now some people that don't know me and Jason have been given reviews back. And I'm pleased with that. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, is there anything you think I'm missing related to uh, addiction or or your story? No, I don't think so. I end with each patient. Just just remember, you have a vulnerable dopamine reward system. You have risk factors, or this wouldn't have happened to you. This is lifetime management. Mm-hmm. And as long as they can keep up with that, they're going to be fine and have a much better prognosis than, say, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. A compliant patient's approach near 100%. And when I stress that to them, that isn't what we see in the world. out in the world. We get uh, relapse rates as high as 80%. Mm-hmm. So, but as I said, that's always due to non-compliance. Right. Did you do the things we ask and their answer back was like, well, I didn't think I needed that part. And I said, well, we need to rethink that then. And you need to get your priorities in row. Do you really want this? If you really want it, it can happen for you. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, what a takeaway that this, this can happen for anyone as long as you follow the steps. I mean, what a beautiful thing. Well, how can people, are you, are you active on any social media? How can people get a hold of you if they'd like to? Uh, yes, actually, I have Instagram that's dr.chucksmith. And I have Facebook that's drcharlesfacesmith. And it, it actually links on the Instagram also. I also have a web page. It's helpsaddiction.com. Uh, it's in the book. And I collect emails from there and periodically send out information, kind of like a newsletter to patients and families who've given me their emails and some things I post on Instagram, uh, things I post on Facebook, new articles, you know, different things in the field of addiction. 
And That's so I, I enjoy having followers there and really enjoy communicating with them. Awesome. And what's your what's your relationship with AA? Oh, I, I have a good, I mean, I worked the steps back when I was in Alabama after treatment. Probably the average Saturday for me was five AA meetings. I had a sponsor. I worked the steps. I still sponsor other men. I'm active in the fellowship. I think the AA Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous was voted one of the 100 books to change the world. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's, a, it's one for the ages, and I've read it many, many times and was really, I, I was just really overwhelmed. They wrote a book that detailed my life about 30 years before I was born. Mm-hmm. As I was reading passage after passage out of AA, I was going, the alcoholic, for example, the alcoholic lives a double life. Certainly, I live a double life. Mm-hmm. That alcoholics crave that comfort and ease that comes with just a few drinks, is another quote out of the book. And it says, Those drinks they see others take with impunity. Yeah. AA must have, uh, must be so helpful in describing some of the things that you mentioned were helpful for people in treatment in that it's like a peer support system and helps give you a 12-step program that you can stick to. So that's great to hear that it, that it works. And I mean, it's been working for how long? New, new people, places, and things that I can start associating with people who understand that alcohol isn't necessarily associated with success, reward, and celebration. Because mm-hmm. society puts it there. I mean, watch any alcohol commercial comes on TV. They're celebrating something or rewarding themselves for something. You never see the patient entering detox on an alcohol commercial. Right. Or someone just crying while drinking a beer that they don't want to be drinking. It's always a party or, you know, the bro- broken relationships. Yeah, it's always positive and up and, and sexy people. And yeah, it doesn't reflect the reality uh, of where it could lead. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been very enlightening and, and I'm, I'm going to take that almost 100% takeaway and, and run away feeling uh, very positive. Okay. Well, I look forward to speaking to you again. If you have any other related topics, I mean, you can either reach me through Mav or uh, my Instagram. Like I said, DB and I respond to it all the time. Just dr.chucksmith. And if you have another topic, uh, opioid crisis or uh, medical marijuana, anything you'd like to discuss, I'd be happy to come back. Awesome. That's a, that's a great idea. I'll definitely take you up on that. Thank you. All right. Oh, man. Re-listening to that interview, I mean, I'm frustrated with myself with how the audio came out. I just couldn't seem to fix it. But I'm also just reminded of... of just how much good information is in there really talking about things that people don't talk about when it comes to addiction like how they need a a safe space to come to and and how they need to be encouraged and supported so yeah thank you so much to the doctor it's fun to call someone the doctor (laughs) thank you so much to charles smith before i get to the weird thing that was causing me anxiety this week I want to remind you of my other podcast called Death Space Filling the Void. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to support the show, you can do so by making a donation through the Buy Me a Coffee link. 
Also, if you're looking to sign up for grocery delivery with Instacart, you can do so. The link is in the description. And by signing up that way, you're telling Instacart that this show right here sent you. And that also helps support the show. Then there's my software tutor who's offering the promo code POD20 for 20% off if you want to get a little bit better at uh, Excel or some other uh, programs like that. And then if you want to be a thoughtful card person, there's the Cardist, and they're offering the promo code ANXIETYPOD for 10% off your orders. A lot of offers coming your way. So, okay, the weird thing that was causing me anxiety this week is there's a new grocery store that opened up probably 30 seconds from my house, right? That's an exaggeration. It takes me 30 seconds to waddle in my car. Regardless, very close. I was just, I went there before the hurricane to just, you know, stock up on, let's be honest, an outrageous amount of snacks for the hurricane <laughs> and candy and just trash, just generally trash. And I was scared because what if it's, what if it's gross? What if it's not a, a good layout, right? Your, your grocery store is so important. And yes, I would still have the grocery store that I have been going to since I've lived here. But what? I would drive by this brand new one and just be reminded of how much it sucks every time I have to go past it. But thankfully, it's beautiful. It's a Publix. Did a great job. A lot of variety. Good layout. Produce was looking right as I zoomed past it. <laughs> so yeah, but the anxiety was building up like, oh God. Right, just inventing in my head. Like, what was I going to see? It's a brand new building with a brand new store. They were going to open it and it was going to be like, like tumbleweeds. Just the, the shelves are completely bare. People doing unsanitary things or something, right? Like sneezing in their hand and then uh, handing you a, a stem of broccoli. Like that, just way too much imagination, Pat. So yeah, real happy to have a, an even closer grocery store. So just want to thank you again for listening. Have a great week and I'll talk to you on Thursday.